We are still uh, in the first uh, psalm in our study of the psalm, so I invite you to turn to that. Psalm 1, as we briefly discussed last week, introduces a number of the themes that are part of the Psalter, and uh, I won't go through those first three verses again. But what the author, and it is anonymous, we do not know who wrote this psalm, what the author is doing is, in effect, if you do a bottom-line sentence summary, you have two choices in life, choose wisely. That's the summary of what he's saying. And he describes in the first three verses a person who's blessed, and that is the very first word of the psalm, and that's... uh, that is in the Old Testament Hebrew way of thinking of blessed. It does not necessarily mean happy, although it can mean that or it's a part of that. But it's it's the kind of life and lifestyle that results from wisdom, from choosing wisely. It's a it's a lifestyle that is is, is characterized and affirmed by God. So that's a long way to describe it. In other words, what kind of life does God bless? What kind of life does God say, that's that's how I want you to live? And so what the author does, and I'll quickly review this because a handful of you weren't here last week, but he, he starts off in a very unusual way. He says, it's not this, it's not this, it's not that, it's this. So that, that first verse is, again, it's just saying it's not this, and it's not that, and it's not that. So what is it? It's a person who delights in the law of the Lord. Amen. And that word delight, it, it, that I, I can't remember all we talked about last week, but that, that word delight in Hebrew is just a wonderful, marvelous word. word. It describes sitting down at a sumptuous meal, and, and enjoying it to its fullest. It's that kind of an idea. Where do you find that? In the Word of God. And in the Word of God, upon which then you meditate, it, it's not something that you just treat in a cursory fashion, but th- this is the center of my life. And I meditate upon it, I contemplate it, I consider it. It's in contrast to seeking to counsel the wicked, considering and contemplating the ways of, of sinners and identifying with identifying with those who mock God. It's, it's not that. It's your center, the vital center, is the Word of God. And then he describes in verse 3 what that produces. And again, I won't go through all of that. But he compares it to simile, like a tree. And so we'll, just, we'll, we'll, we'll finish that quick overview with that statement. Then verse 4. Yeah, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry if you went over this before and I, I missed it. But is there a, a logic to the, the progression of the verbs, you know, walk, stand? Very much so. Very much so. Walk. Uh, walk. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's the life you're considering as a path for your life. You go and you talk to, you seek the counsel of, you seek the advice of someone who's ungodly. Someone who manifests a life of gross evil. That's what that Hebrew word means. And secondly, and it, there's an intensity, then it increases a bit. Then secondly, stand in the way of sinners. That you, you can misinterpret or misunderstand that in English. But what he's saying is, it's like, I think I even stood up yesterday, and you fold your hands and you consider and you contemplate the lifestyle of a sinner. You know, I kind of like what I see. I, I, I like some of the attractiveness of that. And so you're considering it. You're contemplating. And then thirdly, you made kind of a final step. Sit. It means you're now comfortable with. You're identifying with the scoffers. Now, now you've gone from, from uh, seeking their counsel, really seriously considering their lifestyle, to, yeah, you've joined them. And you find that they then scoff and mock the things of God and indeed then scoff and mock at him. And so it's that, it's that typical person who is not seeking the counsel and considering and contemplating the ways of God, but the way we sometimes put it, 
the ways of the world. And last week, I, uh, I said that kind of sensitive message about who you ought to hang out with, who your friends, your acquaintances would be. And, and I mean, if we, if we hang out with, uh, with people that are not living in a godly way and doing something that we know is wrong, if we just hang out with them, uh, pretty soon we might, not, we might think that's the norm. That's okay. That's a, that would be another way of describing part of what the author is saying. That's right. One yeah. of the things that um, I was uh, work with the Good News Jail and Prison Ministries uh, uh, for a few years, and um, one of the things that they tried to do was to separate the uh, the person leaving prison uh, from his old friends, and because what. What they found was when he associated with his old friends, there was repetitive crimes, and then he was lost again. Whereas if he could establish new friends, his life could change. And we tried to tie, the, you know, connect them to Christian friends that would show them a new way of living, and that was pretty effective when they made that connection. It's a, a little bit like when you're growing up and you're trying to decide who are your who are your best friends that you're going to connect with. That that's a very very significant decision a middle school kid or high school kid makes. It's a, it's one of the most important it's very difficult because often uh, they will choose to associate with those kids that are not reinforcing the things of God, but reinforcing just the opposite. Most of you know here that uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and it's been many years since I've had a drink. But when I first quit, I was still hanging around at work, at least at work, with some of the people that I used to drink with, you know. Mm. And they, would, they, they, they were a little bit threatened by me because I quit, and they didn't. And, and they drank the same way I did, and they, they tried to tell me, well, you're not really an alcoholic. You know, you never, everybody gets drunk once in a while. You know, everybody <laughs> have a blackout now and then. And, you know, and got me thinking, you know, and I went and talked to my sponsor, and we got that straightened out. <laughs> it's, isn't that one of the reasons why uh, this is a way you can look, about, look at it? In the New Testament, the one another passages of the New Testament. How important it is to choose people with whom you're going to associate. And the church. The church is a place where you have the one another. We care for one another. We bear one another's burdens. We encourage one another. We edify one another. And if you don't have that circle, uh, that's it's, it's going to be difficult. And so the, the Psalms talk about that in, in, in some of the other Psalms. The author's just laying down, and it's short. It's only six verses laying down the marker. Life is about choices, and you have two. You don't have three, you don't have four, you have two. And you really have to consider what those two are. So moving on then in verse 4, it's very short. It's, it's almost pithy. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it. That same word you saw in verse 1, wicked, is repeated, the wicked. That's a very intense Hebrew word, grossly evil, ungodly. In the context of ancient Israel, it would be those who are outside the covenant. That's really what it means. Those who are outside that covenantal relationship with God are not so. What does that mean, are not so? They're not like verse 3. That's what he means by that. He's not talking about their value or worth as a person. He's talking about their lifestyle and the the effects of their choice. The wicked, the ungodly, the person that's outside the covenant is not so. Not what? Not like a tree planted by the streams of water, yielding its true to season, its leaf to night. It's not that. What is it? It's like chaff. Again, it's not commenting on their value as a person. It's commenting on, in contrast to verse 3, what you see in their life. 
their lifestyle, the characteristics of their life are not so. It's like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, I mean, this Omaha, a city, but we still live very much in an agricultural area. I mean, everybody knows what chaff is, don't you? Yeah. I mean, if it's corn, it's the stalks and junk. If it's weed, it's the crime. It's the stuff that you want to get rid of to get to the main thing of of of, of the, the the product, which is the kernel of wheat or or the corn. And so he says that's that's why because in the ancient world, you know, they're not quite like we are, but they would if it's wheat, they would throw it up in the air fairly high so that the wind would blow all the junk away, and what would fall down to the ground is what you really want. That's it. It's 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 worthless. It's useless. No value to it it, it, that that's exactly right. It's it's just it's of no value, and that and this would mean, in terms of how God is evaluating. And again, this is not talking about the person. Right. A human being is of infinite worth and value to God. He created him in His image. He, he died. He sent the Lord Jesus to die for them. So He's not saying that the, the person is useless. But he's saying, uh, the wicked are not so. They're not like verse 3. Instead, it's like chaff. It's a, it's a worthless, it's a useless lifestyle. The fruit, there's nothing there. I, like to, I used to put it this way with my students. There is nothing eternally significant about what you've done. Again, not commenting on the person. But there's nothing eternally significant in what you've done with your life, and so it's a, it's it's a, it's a strong indictment. But it, again, remember the theme of the psalm is life is about choices. You only have two. Choose wisely. And so he then elaborates. Therefore, if what they have produced is like chaff, again, it's a simile like chaff. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Let's, let's take the second one first. Nor stand in the congregation of the righteous. The congregation of the righteous would be <coughs> excuse me, a reference to um, the worship setting in Israel, in the tabernacle or more completely in the temple, where the congregation of the righteous would gather to worship the Lord, to perform their sacrifices, etc. You're not a part of that. If you put it in the New Testament, it would mean you're not a part of the church. And I don't mean the building down the street. I mean the organic living body of Christ. You're not a part of it. But far, far more importantly, you will not stand in the judgment. And so, and I would understand judgment there to be the great white throne judgment. That's how I would understand that. The very last final judgment, it's mentioned in Revelation 20, for example, that determines your eternal destiny. And so it's kind of like what the author is doing here. He's kind of wanting you to envision, here's the wicked, the person throughout their entire life that's rejected God. They've lived totally for themselves. They may have a magnificent portfolio, which right now isn't worth a lot, but they might have a magnificent portfolio, a, a lot of accolades, maybe many degrees, maybe many honors. And they stand before God, and this is what they present to him. Let's, let's be real crass. Here's why you should let me into heaven. God says it's chaff. It's worthless. It's useless. And so the author is leveling something here without explaining it, without going into detail, but it's sort of an obvious conclusion. You will have nothing, nothing to present to God. When he makes the decision whether you go into eternity with him or go into eternity in hell, like a fire. It's it's that's harsh. But he's not done. He gives a reason. And that reason is verse six. For the Lord and that's in cap, so that's Yahweh, 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the ungodly will perish. Now that little term knows is yada. It's a term of intimacy. It's a relational term. In other words, God has a relationship with the righteous, and he knows their way. That's why he blesses it. But the way of the wicked perishes. Their, 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 their life, again, not the person, but their life and choice are like chaff. Therefore, they will perish. Well, <clears throat> will this be contested by the unrighteous? in any way, or will they, I mean, I don't think people go to hell not knowing that they're going there, or, and even standing today where they're standing is with Christ, and maybe you can comment on that, but I think late, when, when you stand before God, will there be any contesting of that? Well, I did this. You mean like on appeal? You can appeal it? <laughs> yeah, sort of. I object. You know, and <laughs> overruled. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not exactly sure how to answer the question. I'm not exactly sure what you're answering, but I, I think with a fair amount of authority, I can say this based on what Jesus says and others. When God makes his declaration, the evidence will be absolutely overwhelming. I'm guilty. But I think it's, it's deeper than that, quite honestly. Listen, um, when you stand before God, you have chosen, and it sort of fits with the language of this psalm, you have chosen all of your life to reject God. You've chosen all of your life to reject all of all four parts of his revelation to humanity. You've reject, you have rejected his overwhelming number of acts of grace but of God on your part to nudge you to a point where you accept him. You've rejected all that. You really have to work hard to not get in. Well, in, in a sense, I mean, it's just, you, you've just rejected everything, so... As God, and the, the, you know, the Bible speaks of God opens the books, there's, we don't exactly know what that means. What all are in the books? It, maybe it's more than just, it would seem to me it's more than just our wicked deeds. It's, it's probably more that would involve something like this. I've revealed myself to you multiple ways. There are four ways discussed in the Bible. Through my grace, I have given you multiple opportunities to respond to the free gift of my son. But every time you've rejected them, this is what you've chosen. Eternity is a result of that choice. In other words, this is what you've chosen. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. God does not send people to hell. That is the wrong way to put that. God does not send people to hell. That is a consequence, hell, that is, the lake of fire, is a consequence of the choices they've made in space and time. <coughs> God is just saying, this is what you wanted. And cleverly, C.S. Lewis puts it, and it's in his book, The Great Divorce, he puts it this way. My son said to me, not my will, but thy will be done. I'm saying to you, your will be done. This is what you've chosen. I mean, in other words, the culpability of going for eternity into the lake of fire is not on God's shoulders. It's on your shoulders. Yes, amen. This is what you have chosen. Yes. Throughout your entire life, you've chosen this. And so, God, I'm not sure, again, what is in the books? What is all of that? It's not quite clear, the, the, the content of that in the Bible, as, as Jesus talks about, because Jesus is the one who talks about that. And yet, at the same time, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. It's that simple. Life is about two choices. There aren't four, there aren't five, there's two. Choose wisely. Eternity depends on it. Yes, a gentleman whole concept of the Lord watching over us. I, I, I sense it's more than a set of passively observing 
but I mean, if I watched over my children as they grew up, it was, you know, and actively engaged with them to help them grow and to keep them safe. And is that is that a that's very word? much what's that's very much what is involved in that. It isn't just a passive observing. He's way distant landlord, doesn't care too much. They're very actively engaged, watching over, uh, protectively watching over, nurturingly. Is that a word? All of those, that's a part of that. It's, I think you said, uh, use the word passive. It's not a passive. It's an active, engaging uh, uh, watching over us. And to me, if I've understood that Hebrew word correctly, that's a comfort to me. Because I'm one of his children, and it, it's therefore much different than just some distant landlord. Oh yeah, I see what's going on there. Oh, that's nice. You know, Gabriel, did you see that? That's interesting. That's not how God's doing that. It really isn't. This is a uh, this is a tremendous psalm. I mean, it really is. I, for me, I, I've preached on it many times. I've taught it many times. But I think for me, what is so profound about it is it's so simple. There isn't anything complex about this. It's very simple. And if you sum it up in one sentence, it would be life is about a choice. Make sure you choose wisely. Because you only have two. Now, with that, of course, I mean, and you know this, but with that is a, a significant amount of other aspects of the choice because it involves Jesus, it involves understanding what he did, and all of that in, in, in terms of the New Testament context of applying all this. But it's, it's deeply profound. And you just, I don't know how you guys are, but I've, I've worked with many people over the years and young men and so on. And those who know the truth, and it's not that they don't understand it, but just say, no, oh, I don't want that. I don't want that. I just want to take a two-by-four and hit him over the head. I just say, you stupid person. How can you be so dumb? But, you know, you can't manipulate, you can't force people into the kingdom. They must choose. And the author is just simply laying out there's an eternal significance to your choice. Make sure you understand that. So we're done. It only took two hours to do Psalm 1. Everybody got it? Any final questions? This is one of those psalms that's refreshing, and it's good every now and then to just read it. And refresh our, our minds on what really it's about. Amen. All right. I'm going to start the second psalm then. In the introductory material I had given you, I gave you a little... Chart. I forget what page this on. It might be the second page, but it it's uh, a little chart that reflects the what we call the Messianic Psalms. It was that second one I gave you, and you will see that Psalm two is uh, is the first one, and it, it by Psalm two meaning the first of the Messianic Psalms. That's what I meant by that. And so one of the things that we want to make sure we look at here and try to try to discern is how is this referring to the Messiah or even more specifically how is this referring to Jesus but let's get the context um, when <coughs> when Peter in a, in a sermon he preaches in the book of Acts Peter quotes from this psalm and he says as King David said so there is a consensus, although it's not unanimous, there's a consensus among um, uh, Old Testament scholars that David wrote this psalm. If that is the case, then the context for this is this is written by King David at the moment of his coronation. So that's why it's just sometimes called a coronation psalm. Uh, do you know what I mean, a coronation? He's about to be crowned king and there's a little bit of a ceremony, even in the ancient world, there's a bit of ceremony that goes with this. And so David, if that's true, and I think that's probably accurate, if that is true, then David is reflecting on, one, his world, 
as he's about to be coronated. And two, what, what God, who is in effect anointing him, what God expects of him. And therefore, and now just listen very carefully to this. Therefore, this is also about the Heavenly Father talking to God the Son. Because what's one of the titles of God the Son, Jesus Christ? He's the King. He's the Messiah, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. Amen. So I'm saying all of that becomes important because it it's like a lot of the Psalms, it's a double entendre, has two applications. The application to King David a thousand years BC, three thousand years ago, but an also an application to Jesus. And so we're gonna to try to sort through both of those to get the understanding, the full understanding of this this quite magnificent psalm. So, hopefully, with that little bit of background, let me look at the first three verses with you. Now, now remember, the historical context is David is about to be coronated as, his, as king, and he looks at his world, okay? Jesus looks at his world, and what does he say? Why do the people's Rage. I am reading from the ESV translation. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So the language you have here, and there are going to be three parts to it. Again, King David is about to be coronated king. He looks at his world and he sees what you and I see today, 3,000 years later. Things are in a mess. The nations, and that term nation, don't, uh, if I can put it this way, don't think of a modern nation state with clear boundaries. and That didn't exist in the ancient world. It was empires. So nations are more like the ethnic tribes and clans that inhabit planet Earth. Why are they raging? Why is there so much, so much tumult? Why is there so much seeming chaos? Well, that's pretty relevant question for me in 2020. I look at the world and I say, man, things are really in a mess. Why are people raging? Why are the nations raging? And then he individualizes it to the individual people who make up those clans and tribes and nations and the people's plotting. Ooh, that's an intense word. Plotting has the idea of a, of a conspiracy, has the idea of a rebellion. But whatever they're plotting, whatever they're scheming, it's in vain. What does that mean? It's not going to do them any good. It's not going to do them any good. And we'll find out why in the next verse. So David looks at his world. We're right. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah, looks at his world and he sees a mess. In terms of the political leadership, in terms of the people, there's a rebellion going on. There's a tumultuous, vain, stupid, silly rebellion going on. Verse 2. Let me, it's like David is saying, let me be more specific about this rebellion. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. So this is translated different ways in the various translations into English that we have. But you have the idea, you have the idea of the political and the advisors of the political leaders all gathering around a table. So you have the kings, the political leaders, and the rulers, they're their advisors, they're their counselors, they're their cabinet, they're their vice president. I'm trying to make up all terms that would fit the way we think about it today. So you have all of the people who have the power sitting around a table. And, I mean, it's intense. They've set themselves. They're taking counsel together. They're plotting something. 
They're scheming something. This is a meeting of the General Assembly of the United Nations in New York City, gathering together and scheming and plotting something. Against whom? Against Yahweh. Your translations should all have that in capital letters. Well, that's Yahweh, the great I am, the self-sufficient, self-existent God of the universe, and his anointed. Now, the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. We bring that into English, we say Messiah. Now, that's a general word if it's David, that he is about to be anointed king of Israel. So he is God's anointed, God's Messiah. So, but you have, try to put this in the context of Jesus. Jesus looks at his world, he sees an absolute mess. And he sees all the political power centers of planet Earth plotting and hatching this rebellion. Against whom? Against Yahweh and him. So you have this ludicrous situation of puny human beings who think they have a lot of power plotting a rebellion against God. I mean, can you think of anything more silly? But that is precisely what is going on in this planet. That is a, a, an accurate picture of what is going on on planet Earth. That is exactly what they're doing. And then masterfully, verse 3, most of your translations will have this in quotation marks. This is the content of the rebellion. This is the objective and purpose and goal of the rebellion. What do they want? Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. The kings and the power brokers of the world are saying this. So, Who's their bonds, their cords? About whom is this, this talking? Whose bonds and cords? God. So in other words, the content of this rebellion, the goal of this rebellion is we want to be Well, like God, we want to be free. Because living under God's authority is like being tied up. The old King James has let us break their fetters. Nobody uses fetters anymore. You don't know what that word means. But the idea of, of, of bonds and cords is being under the authority of God is like being tied up. Is that how you look at it? That being under God's authority is like being tied up. No. It's restraining. It hurts. It's it's like He's got chains around you. Absolute that's what they're saying. But, the, but uh, yeah, but that's how. If you're outside of God and understanding what He's doing and understanding His love and care and grace, you look at Him as a mean ogre who's preventing you, preventing you from doing what you really want to do. Because when I do what I want to do, then I am. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these three verses, it's like it was written an hour ago. This captures, this captures the essence of the human condition. I don't want to live the way God wants me to live. Gladimer right now is proposing that he will reign in in perpetuity. Uh, and, of course, China's already done that. And I, I think that really fits to what we're talking about here. That would be an example. Well, why, and, why, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't these people outside of God um, fear God as a, because they're pagan gods or angry at them and, and to despise them and, and do things uh, horrible things to them, cause storms, cause floods, cause disasters, and, and so this, why would they expect anything different from God if they're still pagan? That's right. And that's, that's a very insightful comment, Fred, because certainly in the ancient world, but even t- to a real extent today, 
the person outside of God got love and grace and doesn't understand that. They do look at God as someone who's mean, someone who doesn't have their best sense at heart, but someone who is who is angry with them and and is saying, do what I want you to do. It's like a sword of Damocles hanging over your head, or I'm sending you to hell. That's that's the picture of God. And I think worse than that, he's unfair. Well, well yeah, and well, that's it. And then with that is, he's you know he's an ogre up there. He's unfair. He's impulsive. He's contemptuous. And I don't want a God like that. Yeah, you won't let me do what I want. Yeah, and that, well, and well, no, that's right. I mean, it's that. <clears throat> It, it's it's all of that mixed together. It's it's uh, it's distorted. It's perverted. It's wrong. But that's the perspective. There is a well. I won't get into that. But you just you have a picture of this as David is asking his these questions as he observes his world. He's about to be coronated. But verse three, that's so relevant. He's actually praying. These psalms are. A song and a prayer. So, uh, yeah. He's it, asking the Lord, let's burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Uh, no, no. no he, this, what he's doing is he's, this is what the kings, verse 2, and the rulers, this is what they're saying. As they're gathered around this table, as they're counseling together, oh. this is what they're okay. saying. They want we want to be free of God. Their bonds and their courts is referring to Yahweh and his anointed. And so that's what I, I meant. That's, that is so relevant and applicable to today. Um, well, yeah. Can, can, you, can you set up the, the um, uh, Satan's, Satan's active? I mean, this is his domain. And... Um, can you uh, deal with that and how, I mean, comment on that, how the people of the world feel and get this. Where do they get this feeling that you've just mentioned? And and um, and how is that, uh, I mean, we, we view it totally different as being believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, how, I mean, is this Satan at work in the lives of, Leaders of the world, then, would you say, or what? Well, uh, it can be. It certainly reflects, especially uh, part of verse 2 and verse 3, it certainly reflects what you see in Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following, when Satan plots his rebellion against God. I will be like the Most High. I want to be God. I want to topple him from his throne. And that's the spirit of rebellion. That's exactly what it is. And the human race has joined that rebellion. So I'm, I'm not sure it's always energized and empowered by Satan. That's just the human condition. We have rebelled against God. So living under his authority, living under his moral standards and values and virtues, oh, that's constraining. That's too limiting. I want to be free. I want to do what I want to do. And instead of... Um, in, in, instead of seeing as we do when we come to faith in the Lord and begin to understand his word and understand his moral character, that is freeing. That's not constraining. That, that's, not, that's not hemming us in. That's why Jesus is magnificent, really. In John chapter 8, Jesus is addressing, he says, listen, John eight thirty two. If the sun makes you free, S-O-N, if the sun makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, that when he uses that word free there, is that licentious? You, uh, licentious means you do whatever you want. You have license now to do whatever you want. No, no, no. You're free from sin. You're free from its bondage and enslavement. Free now, liberated to serve the God who created you and redeemed you. Now you are a new creation. Now your identity is clear. You're creating God's image. You're redeemed by God. Now you say, that's freeing. Then you see, this is so counterintuitive to the postmodern, post-Christian person. I'm free. Nobody can tell me 
that I can't do this or that I must do this. I choose. I'm the sovereign captain of my own ship, etc. And God says, well, okay, that's how we live our life, but you know you'll live with the consequences of that. So if you choose that in terms of your moral lifestyle, you choose that in terms of what you're going to put in your body, choose that in what you're going to do in terms of how you're going to organize your life and your lifestyle, okay? But there is another way to live. It's back to Psalm 1. I'm your creator. I know what's best for you. I created you in my image. And I'm just suggesting to you as your creator and redeemer, I have another way for you to live. This is the way of abundance. This is the path of righteousness. This is the path of purpose and meaning. This is the path that will lead to like a tree planted by the living. You know, the, but you have to choose. But whichever you choose, you live with the consequences. Because to choose the path of freedom as defined in verse 3 is the path of self-destruction. He's addressing this to kings and queens and presidents and governors and things like that. That's but, whom he's talking about in verse 2. But isn't it true that all of us are kind of kings of our own life? That's right. That's, that's why you, you, you break that down to every single individual. That's exactly what it, it is applicationally. Because, Jim, when, when people today say, I want to be free, I don't, you can't tell me I can't do it. You can't tell me that's wrong. You can make... I'm not. This is what God's saying. Well, I don't want to worship a God like that. That's verse 3. Being under God's authority is like being tied up. That's a way to paraphrase verse 3. Being under God's authority is like being tied up, and I will not be tied up. I'm free. You don't understand freedom. Daniel. Yeah, Daniel. Uh, So verse 2, and when it says, uh, set themselves, it's pretty much saying... I'm my own God, or I am the one that is in control of everything. Right? Yes. Saying themselves, they're saying, we are the salvation. We are the ones that are going to take care of the problems of the world. Well, yeah, in a sense, the image of that phrase set themselves, because that's really, we don't talk like that, so it's hard to understand, is you're digging your heels in and you're standing with your fist aimed at God. Set themselves. I will not live under your authority. And so you have, this is what is so pathetic about it. You have this image of a created being shaking his or her fists at God and saying, I will not live the way you want me to live. I can live my life better. And you can't tell me I'm wrong. You can't call me to account. That's the language of the human condition. Whether you're talking about a country, or you're talking about an individual person in that country. And this is just, oh, this is the language, particularly verse 3, this is the language of the postmodern, post-Christian world. Autonomy is the chief ethic of the postmodern, post-Christian world. And autonomy means I'm a law unto myself. And I mean, it's, it's why this is such a wonderful psalm in terms of really understanding the essence of the human condition. And it helps you to understand the point of verse of Psalm 1. You have two choices and only two choices in life. So do, do you follow um, do you follow and understand how this can apply to King David but also to Jesus? Because Jesus looks at this world and this is what he sees. This is the world he sees a world seething with rebellion against him. That should not be a foreign concept to you because that's kind of everywhere. Can I ask a question? Oh, please. Because when I work out, I work out with a lot of people that have never opened this book. So consciously, we read this and we understand what you're saying and we understand it, but I don't think it's a concept they've ever thought about. Talking to them is really difficult. I mean, they've never opened this book. Mm -hmm. Don't read this book. They didn't go to church when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just have difficulty working in that, talking, and how do you approach that a little bit? Because the conversation we just had is not a thought they would ever have. Mm-hmm. 
mean, they don't think they're rebelling against God because mm -hmm. they don't even know who God is. Or I know maybe they see the sunrise and we see all this the four ways, but to them it's not a concept yet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the importance of you and you and I uh, having conversations with people like that, and you and I representing Christ in a situation like that, both with how we live our lives as well as how we talk. And I, you know, I'm not saying you're not doing that. I'm not saying, but that's the only way a person that has no idea about who God is, what He stands for, anything that's in even these. That's absolutely, you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's an interesting, uh, that's why it's an interesting era to, in which to live because you used to have common ground with people. There was always a certain vocabulary, certain language, there was a common ground. Even though they may define it a little differently, there was common language. That, that is increasingly becoming more and more difficult. The cleavage between me as a between me as a Christian who knows the Lord and loves his word and a person who has no idea what biblical Christianity is. They don't even know the language. They don't they don't even know how to talk about these things. And here you and I come and start using words like sinner and righteousness and justification, and sanctification. They have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. They think you're talking some foreign language. And that's 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 exactly right. That's the challenge. But that's the challenge that the Apostle Paul had as he entered that world with the gospel. So we, we as Christians go out and, and we, we, we talk to people, we, our, our walk, our actions and stuff, are like, like sowing seeds, and some of the seeds are going to fall on fertile <laughs> yeah. ground, and some are going to fall on the rocks. And, and, um, so, but the ones that fall on the, on the fertile ground, then the Holy Spirit's going to come and, and deal with that person, and, and uh, mm -hmm. like He's dealt with me mm -hmm. when I realized what I was and mm -hmm. what I could be. Bill Fay, uh, who he's been around for a while, but he has a wonderful uh, approach to evangelism of the postmodern world, and he says it just it starts with just asking questions. Yep. And he says, and if, if they don't want to talk, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit hasn't prepared. Don't even worry about it. Don't feel guilty. But he suggests something like this. You know, yeah, we've been working out. We're on the treadmill together. I've gotten to see you not and know you a little bit. I'm just wondering. It's just a question because it's kind of important to me. Who's Jesus to you? When you hear the name Jesus, who is he to you? I, don't, I barely know. I, I only heard the term two or three times. Oh, okay. So you really don't have any, no, I, you know, I've, I've heard of him. I, I know people pray to him and talk to him. I see it on the news every now and then. And then Faye says, depending on how they respond, you just say, do you, do you mind if I share with you who Jesus is to me? Amen. And if they say, no, I'm really not honest, fine. Don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty about it. Yeah. But you're just, you're, you're posing a question. It's up to them to respond. But because you, you're, Faye puts it this way, you ask permission. You ask permission to continue the conversation. You're respecting them. You're respecting the dignity. If they shut it down, Faye says, don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty about it. You didn't flunk evangelism 101. Just, you know, don't worry about it. But if you have the opportunity, and that's something, we have to, it's like Apostle Paul does this in Acts 17. He's in the philosophical center of the Greco-Roman world in Athens. Remember what he does? As I was walking up the area, I saw this, statue to the unknown god you're covering your bases i know but i want to tell you what you're calling the unknown god i know who he is he's revealed himself can i tell you about him and so as he's unraveling he uses the design argument for god's existence he quotes two of their poets and all of a sudden they're really fascinated with what he's saying and then he brings up the resurrection which for a lot of them blows it. We don't believe in that hogwash, but some do. So it's just a it's it's just we have to really we have to think through how do we approach people who no longer know our language. And that to me is one of the most striking things. I mean, I'm 72 years old. And I never I honestly I I never thought I'd see what's happening in our culture today where you you can talk to somebody in the United States of America and really don't know who Jesus is. They don't even have the vocabulary. 
that you and I just normally have as we grew up. They don't even they don't even know what you're talking about. They say that's truly amazing. Because it just wants it shows one thing. Each generation has to choose. And if this generation chooses to reject God, to reject the Lord Jesus, what about their children? What about their grandchildren? What about their great grandchildren? Amen. Because they're getting farther in distance now, farther and farther away from God. So now, fourth generation, third generation, they don't even have a clue. They have no models. They have no context. They have no language. They are they are totally alien to everything God stands for. That's the world into which the Apostle Paul took the gospel. They didn't even know the language. The Jews did, but the Greco-Roman people didn't. It's 20 of, and you know we only covered three verses today. And that is not my fault. No, no, you, you've covered six, actually. Oh, that's right. We, I'm sorry. You're right. We did. We, we ended verse four. Now, let's, let's, let's do this real quickly, or at least get started. Verse 4 through 6, God responds. How does God respond to this situation? Look at the language. I want to read verse 4 through 6, and then I'll come back. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, the word there is Adonai, Adonai holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I'm going to wipe you out with a thunderbolt. Is that verse 6? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The word set in verse 6 is the same word as verse 2. So God responds first with derision, the utter stupidity of created human beings shaking their fist, plotting a rebellion, scorning Almighty God. So he laughs. The psalmist says, sits in the heavens. That's an important phrase. The position of sovereignty and rule over this universe sits in the heavens. The sovereign Lord of the universe is laughing. Is he laughing at the horror of the Syrian civil war? Laughing at the the, the carnage that has occurred in in, in the Congo, or the horrors of the wildfires in Australia, and you're going on and on. No, 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 that's, that's not what he's laughing at. He's laughing at human creatures plotting rebellion against the sovereign Lord of the universe. How silly. How silly that is to do that. And so Adonai holds them in derision. It, it, the, the, just the absurdity and, and, and the inane, the inane situation of creatures shaking their fists at the Creator. What what a what a silly thing to do. And then he 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 speaks in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. He's angry. His wrath is real because of the rebellion. But his answer is another king. Not the king leading the rebellion, but is another king. I've set my king on Zion, Zion's Jerusalem, my holy hill. My answer to the rebellion is an alternative to the rebellion. Now, if it's the coronation of David, it's David being coronated as king of Israel, the Davidic monarchy. If it's Jesus, 
which it has that reference to him too, because Peter quotes this in Acts. This is referring to him as the Messiah. He is the answer to the rebellion. God is not going to annihilate the rebels at this point. God is going to offer them an alternative, another king. It's King Jesus. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that a marvelous way to put it? Because the, the way in which the ancient world looked at their gods is they're angry at us. They're going to make our lives absolutely miserable. Zeus is going to hurl thunderbolts at us. Baal is going to make our land infertile for two years. Molech is, I mean, they, this is how they just go around. But not Yahweh. In his grace, he offers an alternative. It's another king. It's a person. Now you and I, you know, reading this through the grid of the New Testament, you and I understand the fullness of what this really means. All that Jesus does and all that he will accomplish. But God is is saying, my answer to this rebellion is I'm going to give you an alternative. I'm going to give you another king. Not the king who's leading the kings who are leading rebellion and even going back to Satan in response to Fred's question a couple of months ago. I'm going to offer you an alternative. And it's going to be centered in the most important city on planet Earth. My city. Jerusalem. And so it's, it's just a fantastic... I, I, I just, it's awesome to me. It's a fantastic rebellion response of God to the rebellion. This is stupid. This is silly. This deserves nothing but derision. I'm angry in my holy, righteous anger. But because I'm gracious and loving and merciful and compassionate, my answer is another king. And then in verses 7 through 9, that king speaks. If you want to understand the fullness of what he says, Come back next week. <laughs> so the, the question about he rebukes them in his anger. Question: How does that happen? And are individuals truly terrified? Because I, I sense a lot of arrogance out there that doesn't reflect. Well, yeah, I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of how I'm going to answer this at 11 minutes of when I'm supposed to stop. So, uh, would you? Would that be all right? I, I, I don't mean I'm not punting here, but I, I, what I want to say, I think, is going to take a little longer than than what we have. If that would be all right, I will definitely answer that next week. Thank you. That's a really good question. Well, let's pray. I hope this is. Isn't this wonderful? I just. I love the Psalms. I, that's why I wanted to do them, and I think it's, it's a blessing for all of us. I'm always refreshed as I study these again. So let me pray. Lord, we are grateful for, well, first, I guess, the reminder of Psalm 1 of how important it is that we make the choices that, uh, that are eternally significant. I, I believe this is true. Every man in this room has made that choice of of becoming a Christ follower, of putting their faith in Jesus, that his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection was for them. They apply that to their life by faith. They're part of the family of God now, new creations in Christ, a whole new identity, all of those wonderful blessings. And uh, the, the consequences of that are so eternally significant. And we have the promise of verse 3 that we will now be uh, immersing our hearts and our minds and our, th- our souls into the Word of God and become like a tree, bearing the fruit that you want to produce in our lives and so on. Thank you, too, that uh, as the, verse 6 says, we know you and you know us. As Max Lucado says, we're a picture on your refrigerator, Lord. That's how important we are to you. But also Psalm 2 is just a, another wonderful reminder of your sovereignty of your power and glory and this, this silliness of humanity rebelling against you. 
but your answer is Jesus, which is really the whole point of verse 6. And it is in the person of Jesus that we have the response to the rebellion. It will lead him to the cross, but it will lead him, too, to triumph as the warrior king who returns in his second coming. We look forward to that. Indeed, we even long for that. Lord, we're living in a very tumultuous time right now. There's a lot of uncertainty each day we wake up, a lot of things going on. Help us to be men of peace, men of faith, men of God who trust you in this time of uncertainty. We're not controlled by circumstances. Our response is always faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to be men of faith. So we trust these things to you. Be with these men. Help them in their lives. All they do and all they say, may they represent you well, we pray in Christ's name.